Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your holy word. Speak to us now through the preaching of your word and grant us open ears and understanding hearts to receive your word and give us willing hands to respond with obedience. For we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Please open your Bibles to our scripture reading this morning, our sermon text, Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 13. You'll find this in the Pew Bibles on page 949. So Romans 15, 1 through 13. Here now, this is the holy, infallible word of God. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing, your, sing to your name. And again, it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. This is now our third week looking at how Paul is addressing the problem of the division in the church in Rome between the strong and the weak. Those who embrace their freedom in Christ and others who are still keeping some of the Mosaic laws and Jewish traditions. Paul's exhortation is not to put pressure on the weak to make them strong, but rather to bring unity to the church, not only so that the believers will enjoy one another's fellowship and build each other up in love, but also so that they will bring glory to their Heavenly Father. And that's the emphasis this morning. In chapter 14, he first focused on their attitude toward one another, that they would no longer judge and condemn one another. Then he urged the strong, not to set a stumbling block before the weak, but to set aside their rights and their freedoms for the good of their brothers. 
This morning at the center of his exhortation stands the shining example of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who has welcomed and served us. And we are to follow his example in the way we treat one another in the church. This passage not only concludes this whole section on the strong and the weak, but it also brings to an end the larger section on Christian living, which began all the way back at the beginning of chapter 12. The rest of this letter will be devoted to Paul's final remarks, his missionary plans, and his closing greetings. We can see that things are coming to an end, as there are already two beautiful benedictions in our passage this morning. Although there is still one more climactic benediction benediction awaiting us at the very end of the letter. So this morning we have one final summons to unity as a church. And there could be no greater motivation to this end than the one that Paul gives us. Because we follow the example of Christ and because we seek the glory of God. So first this morning, follow Christ's example of serving one another. Verse 1, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Here, let me remind you that the weak were those who abstained from meat and celebrated special days out of an adherence to the Mosaic law and the Jewish traditions. Meanwhile, the strong, understanding that they were no longer uh, that they were set free, understanding that they were set free from these things in Christ, they were no longer bound. But with strength comes responsibility, a responsibility to bear the load of our weaker brothers and sisters. Just as we are called, according to Galatians 6.2, to bear one, another, one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. In Galatians, Paul also says, We are not to use our freedom as an opportunity to sin, but to in love serve one another. In the same way here, if you know you have been set free in Christ, and so you are strong in faith, then you ought to use that strength to lovingly serve your weaker brethren. Remember how Christ served you when you were weak, as Paul wrote back in chapter 5. For while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 1 ends with not pleasing ourselves. And Paul builds on this in verse 2. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. So Paul here is exhorting the strong to seek the good of their weaker brothers and sisters for their spiritual edification. Now last time we considered What were some of the practical ways we might do this? For example, in the context of a fellowship meal. How we might encourage a brother or sister with our words. How we might serve them with our actions. We are to be to one another as iron sharpening iron. So that when each member of the body is using its spiritual gifts, the whole body grows up in maturity, become more and more like its head. Our Lord Jesus Christ. Next, Paul draws our attention to Christ in verse 3. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. We see here that in pleasing others, Christ is our great example. He is the one who has blazed the trail before us. Here Paul has Christ quoting 
the words of Psalm 69.9, saying that some, they intended to cast insults against God the Father, but instead the insults have fallen on His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, it's certainly true that Christ fulfilled this psalm, most of all in His crucifixion, but we might ask, why has Paul chosen to quote this here? By drawing our attention to Christ being mocked on the cross, He reminds us of Christ being willing to stoop so low, to be humiliated on the cross in order to serve sinners like us. He willingly laid down his life for us to save us from our sins. Obviously, he did this not to please himself, but for our eternal benefit. And Paul is putting Christ forward here as the great example of what it looks like to not please yourself but others. John Chrysostom writes, he has the power not to have been reproached, power not to have suffered what he did suffer, had he been minded to look to his own things. Of course, we might add, what he was concerned about was our salvation. So he gladly laid down his life, and in doing so, he secured everything else as well. Glory for God the Father. Glory for himself and glory for his people as well. For we will be glorified with him on that final day. Paul takes a similar tack in Philippians chapter 2, where he is also seeking to bring unity to a divided church. There he writes, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What an example we have to follow. Now Paul actually says this mindset, this way of thinking of humbling yourself in order to serve, this is yours in Christ Jesus. And that's what we need, is it not? For the Spirit to work this humility within us, sanctifying us from within to make us more and more like Christ, our great example. And continuing in verse 4, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. This verse might be considered a brief detour from Paul's main argument here, but it is actually a verse of great importance in the New Testament. Paul's reflecting on his use of the Old Testament. Most immediately, this verse he's just quoted from Psalm 69, but perhaps also the multitude of Old Testament verses he has quoted throughout Romans. Now, it is crucial that Paul points out the importance of the Old Testament scriptures for our instructions at this juncture, because he's also proclaiming that under the New Testament, we are free from some of the Old Testament strictures 
that we are free from the civil and the ceremonial laws of Moses. That does not, however, mean that the Old Testament is of any less value to instruct us. And as Paul writes here, through endurance and uh, through endurance to encourage us and ultimately to give us hope. Paul writes in a similar way to the Corinthians. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come, 1 Corinthians 10, 11. We might be under the new covenant and not the old, but there is much profit in studying the Old Testament. It is a sad reality that many believers today are woefully unacquainted or underacquainted with the Old Testament scriptures. As we are drawing near to the end of this sermon series on Romans, I'm really looking forward to starting my next series, and it will be on an Old Testament book, the prophet Zechariah. It's also worth bearing in mind that most of the strong in Rome, they're coming from Gentile backgrounds. While Paul assumes that they had some education in the Hebrew scriptures in the church, certainly they were not raised on the scriptures like a Jew. As Gentiles, before Christ came, they were separated from God's people outside the covenant without hope and without God in the world. But now he emphasizes how the very scriptures that once set them apart are now a source of encouragement and hope for them. For they are the scriptures that foretold the coming of the Messiah. The scriptures that have now been fulfilled by Jesus Christ. These Gentiles are wild branches which have now been brought near and grafted into God's olive tree. And they are to receive the written word of God in the Old Testament scriptures along with all the people of God. And so Paul wraps up this first paragraph in our text with the first of two benedictions in verses 5 and 6. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here we see this beautiful prayer of blessing for the church in Rome. He describes God as the God who is the source of endurance and encouragement. The same attributes mentioned in verse 4 in connection with the scriptures. And he prays that God would grant the church to live in harmony together in Christ. Literally, that they be of one mind in Christ. This is not to say that they will immediately come to the same convictions on these disputed issues, but that they are able to come to a place where they can share in fellowship despite their differences. This will then enable them to lift up one voice in praise to glorify their God and the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here in this verse, we see that one of the great tragedies of division in the church is that it undermines worship. A divided church leads to disharmonious worship. But a united church can lift up one united voice and with great strength praise our God as he deserves to be worshipped. And that is a true blessing. The blessing that Paul desires for the church in Rome. 
a blessing that can still be pronounced over God's church today. That we be one mind in Christ. And that with one voice we might glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This brings us then to our second part this morning. Follow Christ's example of welcoming one another. Verses 7 through 13. Reading again verse 7. Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Paul opened this section on the strong and the weak in 14.1 with the exhortation to welcome the weaker brother. And now as he comes to the conclusion in these verses, he circles back to this theme with the more general exhortation to all. Welcome one another. Here we see the basis for the welcome. Because Christ has welcomed you and just as Christ has welcomed you, so you are to welcome your brothers and sisters in Christ. And here we also have the purpose for this welcome. It is for the glory of God. And as we saw in the previous verse, when the church is divided by schisms, God's worship is undermined. But when the church is united, he is glorified by the church's unified voice lifting up, lifted up in worship. And Paul builds on this in verse 8. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Here Paul lays out how Christ's redeeming work first demonstrates the truthfulness of God by fulfilling all his promises given in the Old Testament for his covenant people. But he doesn't stop with only redeeming his people Israel, the descendants of Abraham. But he also welcomes in the Gentiles from all the nations that they too might glorify God. And here we are reminded of all that Paul said back in chapters 9 through 11 about the true true children of Abraham. Not the mere children of the flesh, the physical descendants, but the children of the promise. All those who possess the faith of Abraham. All those whom God has foreknown and chosen for himself. And God has always made known his intention was to include people from every nation and tribe, every people and tongue, that people from all the corners of the earth might sing his praises and give him glory. And that's exactly what Paul goes on to demonstrate in the following verses by a series of four quotations from the Old Testament. And here again, he follows his practice of citing each section of the Hebrew Bible, the law, the prophets, and the writings, specifically here, the Psalms. And all four quotations are linked by the keyword Gentiles. And this word can also be translated nation. So if you look these verses up in your Old Testament, you'll probably find the word nations there. So reading verse 9b, as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing your name. This is a quotation from Psalm 1849. In the broader context of this Psalm of David, King David is praising the Lord because the Lord has given him Victory over the Gentile nations, subduing them under his righteous rule. Now, in this first quotation, the Gentiles have not yet 
joined in the praise, but they have been incorporated into God's kingdom. Now, Paul may also be quoting this first verse not only as a psalm of David, but as a messianic psalm. One fulfilled by the risen Christ who in his redemptive victory has rescued Gentiles from darkness and brought them into his kingdom of light. And then we have next verse 10. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. This quotation is from the Greek Septuagint translation of Deuteronomy 32:43, And it's the final verse of the Song of Moses. And here we have a step forward from the previous quotation. Because now it's not just the king rejoicing among the Gentiles, but now the Gentiles themselves are called to rejoice along with God's people. Next we have verse 11. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. This verse is quoted from Psalm 117.1. It's the shortest psalm in the Psalter, just two verses one we often sing as a doxology. And it again calls the Gentile nations to praise the Lord. And the next verse in the psalm cites the steadfast love and the faithfulness of the Lord which endures forever as the reasons for this praise. And finally, verse 12. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles In him will the Gentiles hope. His final citation comes from Isaiah 11, verse 10, which we read earlier in our scripture reading. The root of Jesse is clearly our Lord Jesus Christ. His arising may be a reference to his resurrection. He rises from the dead to rule the Gentiles, that they may put their hope in him, the Savior of all who trust and hope in him. The following verse in Isaiah 11 speaks of him gathering a remnant from many nations. Now here Paul is choosing just four short verses, which he quotes to make his point. But of course, there are many, many more verses he could have chosen from. His point is that the nations will rejoice in the Lord. They will give him his praises, all the worship that he is worthy of. Now, even though the majority of Jews in the first century had grown very hostile to this idea of the inclusion of the Gentiles, an unbiased reading of the Hebrew Scriptures makes it very clear that this was always God's plan. This this section is also strategically placed here in the letter for two reasons. First, because the division between the strong and the weak was largely along the lines between Jewish and Gentile believers— And Paul was seeking to bring healing to this division. Now, certainly the strong were not universally from Gentile backgrounds, since Paul, a Jewish believer, places himself in that group. But largely that's how the lines had fallen. But Paul wants them to see that God's plan had always been to unite all peoples into one church in Christ, and that would help bring unity to his church. And the point that Paul is making is that unity in the church brings unity in worship, and that brings glory to God. And second, as Paul is now working towards the conclusion of the letter, we should also remember how he began the letter, with his thesis statement all the way back in chapter 1. 
For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, Romans 1.16. All along he has been proclaiming this gospel is for all who believe, everyone who will put his trust in Christ. And while Paul preserves this redemptive historical order, first for the Jew and also for the Greek or the Gentile, the way is now open for all. And so with the welcome for the Gentiles proven from Scripture, Paul concludes this section now with a second benediction. Verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Now the second benediction is particularly rich. We see God described as a God of hope. And Paul calls on the Father to fill his people with all joy and peace as they believe in him. Now clearly this is a blessing for believers as it is also given through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. The final result is that you are filled not only with joy and peace, but also with hope. I don't know what your emotional state was when you came in to church this morning, what it might be even now as you're listening to the sermon preached. Perhaps some of you have very heavy hearts. Some may be anxious and need the peace of God. Some may be downcast and need the joy of God. Some may even be despairing and need the hope of God. Whatever may be on your heart, we could all use the gift of God's joy, peace, and hope. And that is what Paul prays for the church in Rome, and what I will pray for as I pronounce this benediction over you all at the conclusion of the service this morning. In our passage this morning, our Lord Jesus Christ is set forth as the one who has gone before us, the author and perfecter of our faith. Because he has rescued us from our sins, we're called to follow after him. Just as Christ pleased not himself, but gave himself to serve others, so we are called to live our lives not for ourselves, but for others especially, our brothers and sisters in Christ. He gave his life to break down that dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, to bring all of God's chosen people into his kingdom. And since Christ gave himself for us all, he cannot let anything divide us, not even differing convictions on how to live the Christian life. This passion, this passage calls us to unity in Christ. As we follow Christ's example, and it also shows us the glorious purpose for this unity, that with one voice, with one voice, we might glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is Paul's prayer of blessing for the church in Rome, and what could be a greater blessing for us as well. And so, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Let's pray.
Our great God and heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and how you reveal yourself to us in it through your son, Jesus Christ, our savior, our redeemer, our prophet, our priest, and our king. He is the trailblazer who went before us and shows us what it is to love, to serve, not to please himself, but to please others and to give himself for us, even when we were your enemies. And so, Father, we do pray if there be any divisions among us, that you would heal them so that we might better be united in your worship and in your praise. For, Lord, you have created us to give you glory. And we pray that you would uh, help us to do that, to live our lives all for your glory. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.